Look for what is most on your heart. What is the thing that you can't stop thinking about? What's the need in the world that keeps popping into your mind? And then here is the scary part. Look for someone who's different from you, who may even have a different reason to care and make friends with them. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we're taking two words that we hear all the time, but we usually don't think of them as opposites in a pair, ownership and stewardship. And we have a couple of guests, one who really helps us understand the concept and another one who helps us by just showing how she's doing it. I'm with senior producer Heather Bigley today. Heather, thank you. Hello. And these two guests, first, Gaynalyn Condi. She's a writer, a speaker. She's a consultant. She hosts the podcast Talk of Him with John Fossum, and she's the author of several books, including most recently The Stewardship Principle, which we are going to focus on. So in talking about the difference between ownership, which we hear a lot about in corporate talk, take ownership. Yeah. And and. My coach would say this on the team, would they take ownership? If the ball's coming, don't think someone else is going to catch it. Say, got it, mine, or whatever. Did you feel like you learned something new in this concept? Yeah, I am a person who uh, is really proud of living in ownership. I have to say, (laughs) I can solve a problem. Let me solve a problem. And so to listen to her and to think about her ideas, which are that ownership is actually a really difficult place to be because it causes you all kinds of anxiety. It causes you to identify too closely with choices that other people are making that aren't, that are well outside of your control. This was helpful to me in a couple of ways. I could apply it to things that I'm doing or want to happen or that I'm responsible for. But the way she explains the definitions actually took me back to a story I share with her about raising one of my kids. Yeah. And I'm glad you shared that. I thought that was a great story and helped me understand some of the relationships in my own life where I should just be thinking about how do I help and support and less about this reflects on me and this makes me look bad in some way. (laughs) And she's not only talking about jobs, for instance. There's some really difficult things. What if you are diagnosed with a chronic illness? This is going to be with you. She talks about a kind of a transition moment in her life when she loses her sister to suicide and how she has to decide how she's going to think about these ideas. We need particular definitions, and the way she uses ownership really is, I completely identify with this thing, this project, this person I'm, quote, in charge of. Anything goes wrong, it's all on me, and I'm a bad person. But this whole idea of stewardship that I have... accepted a responsibility or I have been gifted an opportunity to help with this can really change how it affects our lives. And let's just dive in right here with Gainalyn as she talks about the difference in these concepts. Ownership is definitely the buzzword. Stewardship isn't the thing that everyone's like waking up in the middle of the night thinking about. The ownership word right now is very much about an invitation to be intentional And stewarding isn't about not being intentional. So it's not to say that I want people to feel like they're phoning in their lives or passing the buck or not showing up 100% in their various responsibilities. But it is a different, it's a reframe of how you choose to show up in those specific roles. A stewardship mindset is expansive and ownership mindset is very limited and it shuts you down. So it takes away that creative side of our hearts. It shuts down the faith side and the fear gets louder. It pushes you into more comparisons instead of just being 
open to the idea that you're unique and your contribution is unique. And if someone has never heard of stewardship before and they're a parent, I can explain to them stewardship faster than any other thing because I think the quickest way I go into ownership is in parenting, especially with adult children. I mean, you do it when your kids are toddlers and they throw a fit in front of grandma and grandma looks at you like, are you not parenting your child correctly? And all of a sudden the choices (laughs) of your child are reflected. And you feel terrible. Yeah, you're in ownership because your child's choices. But you and I both have adult children and that doesn't stop. And then all of a sudden your children are over the age of 18 making life choices that are long-term consequences. And I have found the stewardship principle has been the most effective in maintaining connection with my children in a loving way where I'm still an influence in their life. I'm intentional in how I show up in their life. But if I go into ownership, that's when adult children, especially in teenagers, are like, you know what? You're taking my agency away. You're trying to control me. And it shuts the relationship down. Think about as a parent. If you over-identify with the choices of what your children are doing or making as a reflection of who you are, your worth, or your effectiveness as a parent, you're in ownership. And you're making it all about you. And you're making it all about you. And guess what happens for me? I stop being inspired how to show up as an effective mom. I stop finding ways to create connection with my kids. And I alienate them because no one wants to be owned No one, I'm 52 and I don't want my mom to take responsibility for what I'm choosing, right? (laughs) The reality is, of course, as parents, we want to be intentional. And the stewardship of parenting changes depending on the age of your kid. When your children are younger, you do have more influence. Usually who they're playing with, you know who their teachers are. You put them to bed at night, you lock the front door, and you think you have some kind of control over how things are going to turn out. Then they turn 16 and they get car keys, right? Or they start dating or they move away and go to college. And all of a sudden you realize pretty quickly that your stewardship was never ownership. So one of my children has a disability with OCD and and some social anxiety. And so we're always butting heads. And I got a call, which I got several times a semester. Can you come talk to the principal? Your son's there. And and I'm leaving my work, which I had deadlines. And so I had gotten into the habit, I think, of thinking, this is so hard and this interrupts what I'm doing. And, you know, these are things I would never do or say in a classroom. And so I thought, no, have I not taught him? And forgetting the whole disability thing. And one time, junior high, I'm driving there. And I think I opened myself up by saying a a bit of a prayer. When I walk through this door, help, help me know what to say. And it turned out it wasn't what to say. Maybe because I opened the door, suddenly it's like God burst through and said, as long as you're listening. (laughs) I have some things to say, yeah. Yeah, and I just knew in an instant, this was not a problem. This was my privilege to be his advocate with people who did not understand. Yes. And I just burst into tears in the car. I thought, I've been doing this wrong for years. And this is my privilege. Right to be his advocate. I love that example. It's such a beautiful example. And I want to just add to that some compassion to you as a dad, because the reality is not all stewardships are made equal. When we are stewarding as parents over children that have high levels of mental health needs, they are in stewardship. And when Mm. we help them understand that maybe their chronic long journey with depression, OCD, addiction, or whatever that is, if they can start seeing their situation, disability, uniqueness, neurodifference as a stewardship, it opens their capacity to approach it and find tools. But I do think that what happens is when we see our neighbors seeming to be blessed by God with all the fun stewardships of going to Hawaii and a new (laughs) Tesla and their kids all go to Harvard and they all go get married and have successful lives and your child is still wrestling with transition and your car keeps breaking down, which mine did this morning on the freeway, I think we need to offer ourselves some self-compassion that some stewardships are, one, chronic, two, highly charged emotionally, and three, because they're chronic and highly charged emotionally, the approach of getting inspiration, new approaches, solutions, and support are more complicated. When it's your child and you're watching how the world is interacting with them in that situation or that stewardship, and their self-esteem starts to take a hit, of course, as parents, it's easy to go into ownership because ownership gives us this false sense that we can control the vulnerability. You have, if I may quote you to yourself, please (laughs) see if you still agree. (laughs) In chapter one, you have 
You say some say the easiest way to pull off a Band-Aid is do it quickly. So here it is. Nothing you have is yours. Mm. Nothing. Not your body, your time, your family, your job, your car, your dog, or the money. You own nothing. You are a steward, but not an owner. God created everything and everyone for our growth and development. So we have stewardships, a calling to take care of what he's created. You did a remarkable thing when you were diagnosed with mm. a chronic disease. Nobody thinks of that as a stewardship watch, care over. Yeah. to deal with or, or to watch over this. Can you walk me through that process? Well, I start the book with the parable in the Bible. For our Christian listeners or readers of the Bible, you'll recognize the parable of the talents. And I analogize and I summarize the idea that possibly the two servants that got the higher level or the larger number of talents were given the lists of the things we all like on social media. Graduating from Harvard, successful marriage, brand new house, garden is producing the best tomatoes in the neighborhood, whatever that is. And then the one servant that gets the one talent For me, it was a diagnosis with lupus where I was told I had 10 years to live and we would never have children. That servant was given a talent that is not comfortable, that's not fun, that's an addiction. And no one would think that's God blessing this. The master was blessing that that servant. But what we see in the parable is that when the master comes back and wants an accounting for it, that servant had buried it because it was fill in the blank a hard stewardship. It was a difficult addiction, whatever. Something they didn't want to share publicly. Something they didn't want to, maybe it was a private, personal, shameful. Maybe it was something that was obviously not fun or easy. So why would anyone take that, consecrate it for good? And yet the reality is, I think God is really teaching us in that, that he multiplied for the two servants that had taken it and consecrated it and been stewards over it. The same possibility is available to the drug addict. My friend who's permanently paralyzed in a wheelchair, Chad Hymas, he's a great example to me. Recently, I had a pretty bad accident and I shattered my left wrist and had 52 broken pieces of bone and an emergency surgery with a metal plate. And for a good couple of weeks have had only use of one hand. And I've messaged my friend Chad that I talk about multiple times that I had a new appreciation of the stewardship of having two hands and trying to get dressed and feed myself and bathe. My husband had to help me. I really believe that when we see life as a steward, we invite God into the equation. And God thinks everything's beautiful. Even the ugly, hard stuff, he does think it's beautiful. And he has a capacity to consecrate it for our good. So this is that other word I wanted to get to is reframing. Mm -hmm. Because in a way, even if we don't really go back and change the past, God can change the past because he can change how we view it or how we think about it. Absolutely. And I recently had an experience, I don't know if you've had this happen, where someone from 20 plus years ago reached out and it wasn't a positive conversation. And this individual had told themselves a story about something that I had done to hurt them. And it was so fascinating to me. And it was a lesson for me that it's the stories we tell ourselves, the characters that we cast in our stories, and then the details that we backfill in those stories Mm. that sometimes cause unintentional or unnecessary pain. And so I am by no means Pollyanna about the fact that there are some very challenging stewardships that people are living. I've lost a sister to suicide. I lost a sister when I was 10 years old that died at the age of two. My parents were divorced. I've had an employment story with my husband and infertility. And those are some of the harder stewardships. If people only know me from my public profile, sometimes it's, oh, you host a weekly show and you get to be on BYU Radio and you (laughs) write books and you get awards for those books and you speak all over the world. Yes, But those are sometimes the good stewardships can be a trap too. And sometimes if we don't reframe the good things, then our identity becomes so wrapped up into how many book awards do I get? How many books do I sell? How many speaking events do I get invited to? And so it's a beautiful way to reframe everything. I always say the stewardship approach reframes the good stuff. It becomes better. The hard stuff becomes easier. How did you learn spiritually, or did God teach you, or you discovered how how to look at things as a stewardship? And then practically, 
What does that mean to live that? During a time where my son, who's 25 now, was in that, what we call the angry years, 13 (laughs) to 15, where I loved him, but I didn't always like him. And he knows we called it the angry years because he would label it that as well. It was a very challenging time in my parenting. And I had fought so hard with my life to have these babies. And I was so grateful to be a mom, but I felt at a loss. And at that point, my friend Andrea introduced me to this principle. And she did so with some curriculum that was one sentence, one sentence. In my mind, it was the whole curriculum. For 10 years, I thought the whole curriculum was this whole principle. And I thought, God has literally been tutoring me for the last 10 years on application. I think it can repair relationships. It can repair our feelings with God. When it feels like God is just sending down all the storms and tornadoes to our house and everyone across the street is getting all the sunny weather, I think it starts to put a wedge between us and who we may worship. And that starts to feel like we don't have a loving God that is watching out for my happiness and good. But when I see it as a stewardship, then I'm like, oh yeah, God, I'll do this for you. I'll do lupus for you. I'll do suicide grief for you. I'll do divorced parents for you. I'll do raising an angry teenager for a couple of years that we wrestled with for you. You trusted me and you believe in me. And so I'm going to keep coming to you. And I feel like if I do that, you're going to inspire me hour by hour, day by day, how to stay in this stewardship. What does that look like practically? Because when you're in any one of those situations, how do you say, Show me my place in this stewardship. The first step is to identify when you're in ownership. Really, it's Which is when you're trying to control or you feel threatened yourself. You feel controlled. I give a lot of voice examples of ownership, but usually control, anger, fear, comparisons, self-doubt. Those are signals to me I've stepped into an ownership mindset, and it's a dead end. It's not going to give me new ideas on how to approach that child that's struggling with an eating disorder. It's not going to help me deal with a spouse that may have an addiction. So the ownership might be, I keep trying and I haven't changed this other person. I have failed. Yeah. It's a shortcoming in me. And conversely, the stewardship in that would be... So I would say first and foremost, identify you're in ownership because you will feel the weight on your shoulders release when all of a sudden you realize, oh, I have completely taken ownership of this. When you switch it to stewardship, then I feel like you open up the door to an idea for the next plan B. So I think especially let's take the stewardship of mental health. If you have a chronic stewardship of depression, anxiety, and a lifetime diagnosis, and you know it's not going to go anywhere, and you're in your adulthood now, and you're exhausted by it, I would say stewardship allows you to not be in self-rejection, but it also allows you to try another plan B. It's reaching out to a new therapist. It's trying maybe a new medicine. It's trying light therapy, right? Those are all things that for me, when I'm in stewardship, it's almost as if a light comes on versus when I'm in ownership, all the lights start to turn off. And all I see is what isn't possible and can't happen and what's wrong with the situation. When I'm in stewardship, I often need to cry to a friend. I need to get on the phone and say, I'm I know I'm in ownership and I'm overwhelmed and I'm exhausted and I have a good count on one hand of faith friends that I know will help me switch back into stewardship, not because they don't give me space to speak the pain out loud, but precisely because once I speak the pain out loud, they turn me back to the source and they remind me who I am and my capacity. They help me pull out of the comparisons. They help me check my boundaries, maybe with my children or the way I'm talking about my body because it's not working the way I want it to work or whatever that is. So I am a fan of speaking the truth. And that means sometimes you got to say out loud, this isn't fun, it's not working, and I'm discouraged. That's where I think therapy is amazing. That's where I think good faith friends are amazing. I've started to get really attuned to that voice that feels discouraging, that feels overwhelmed, that feels judged, that feels limited in hope. And I've also become attuned to the voice that says, hey, this situation, I don't all of a sudden magically not have a diagnosis. I don't magically not have a shattered wrist. I don't magically have all the answers to all my prayers. But I know when I'm in stewardship because there's still hope. There's joy. There's ideas of what to try as a plan B or a C or a D. That to me is 
something that we all like you're in the radio business it's tuning the dial and are you turning the dial to the voice of the owner it, you're going to stop pretty fast you're going to run out of gas if you turn the dial in a stewardship mindset you're going to continue to be inspired and think about the people that you're inspired by they're the people that have not skipped through life without hard stewardships. They're not the people that got to only do all the fun things. They're not the people that only were given all the fun stewardships. They're usually the people that I look to as mentors and teachers and faith leaders because they've navigated some of these stewardships in a way that God has trusted them and they have found a way forward. How would we function in business and in government if we saw everything that we are given, not as power, not as clout and prestige, but as stewardship. Oh my gosh, what what would change in our leaders if they saw the work they did in Washington or in the boardroom as a sacred stewardship? This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is In Good Faith. Here's one more word. While we're talking about one-word definitions and yeah. simple concepts, gift. Talk to me about, and, and it, is it always time? Does it always take time to recognize well, those things? Well, my kids are both in college right now, and depending on the semester and the class and the teacher, there's some semesters that feel pretty great, and there's other semesters that feel like big failures. Mm. But I have said to both of them, it's the accumulation experience is why you get the degree. It's the degree represents that you navigated the hard professors and the discouraging semesters and the classes that were boring and the roommates <laughs> that were annoying and the, right, the semesters that you just thought this, there's nothing about this that is fun. So one of the things that I think is important is what I believe is heaven and Zion and whatever phrase you want to call what that version of life eventually will be is that all of us will bring the accumulation of all the semesters of college that we quote unquote live through immortality. And we will build a life in community together, not because we hide in shame our addiction or our stewardships that may have been painful, but because we offer them up as a gift. And that means my neighbor, who right now is grieving the loss of her daughter, is able to serve me in a way, and I'm able to serve her because of the loss of my sister. I've been her neighbor for nine years. For nine years, she didn't realize that at one day, our stewardships were going to intersect. And now we sit and cry together in a different way. And I feel like, would I have Meg back in a heartbeat? For sure. But am I grateful that in the loss of my sister Meg, I'm able to support a mom who's grieving the suicide death of her teenage daughter? For sure. You do sort of a modern day translation of a scripture that says, this is God speaking in your paraphrase, I trusted you to consecrate what I gave you. I trusted you to share it for in sharing, you'll receive more. In hiding it, what you have been given has caused you to lose it or to, you know, that it hasn't even blessed you. That's that's a real change. This whole seeing things as a gift, maybe even if it takes time, yeah. is just quite a remarkable change. I just want to say that 12-step teaches that pretty perfectly. That you're, you're required to share. Yeah. If you're in recovery, you give it away. And so I think there's, you may not be there yet. When I speak and I talk about losing Meg, I often hear from people that are in the audience that have lost someone to suicide and they think they should already be writing books and speaking about it. I think we need to get mm. away from the idea that you have to have an Etsy store or YouTube channel to make something purposeful of your pain. Sometimes it is sitting with your neighbor one-on-one -on -one, holding space for their pain. That is the gift giving back. You don't maybe need to run a recovery center. You may never write a book. You may never do a YouTube channel video about it. But is there a way that the lady at the grocery store, you have a conversation one day and yes, you've gone through an unemployment too and now they're going through that too, that you help them. Can that be the gift? Can that be the giving back from that space? And you may not be there yet. You may be still in what I call, I like to speak from my scars, but I don't talk about my current bleeding wounds because it wouldn't be responsible. Certain bleeding stewardships right now, I'm not there yet, but I'm always willing to talk to you about my scars. I'm pretty open about them because I, in my my journey, that's been a place of healing to give back from that place. So if you're just still in that corner of your closet and it's too raw and it's too new, 
don't think about the giving back part yet. Just start thinking of it as a stewardship and let God show up in it in a different way. Maybe check the story you're telling yourself. He's not punishing you. He may be gifting you and you may not see it yet, but I promise you, if you keep in stewardship, you will. That's Gaynalyn Condi, who is the author of The Stewardship Principle, really giving some new ways of thinking about things that we're responsible for. You know, it was interesting listening to her because she talks about a number of things that I wouldn't think of as gifts. Right. She uses that term gifts. And in fact, I have to admit, I became uncomfortable because I was like, I don't want to think of this as a gift. In my own personal theology, I really believe that there are all kinds of things that happen that we have no control over and that God is not uh, responsible for either. But God is responsible for healing us, mm. right? That's his offer to us is come and be made whole again. And really, whichever way you think about it, whether it's like in order to get through this life with what I need to accomplish or learn or experience that God has put these certain things in my path, I could conceivably see how that really could be the thing. And maybe there are very specific things we need. I tend to think God put us here in this imperfect world, and we are just going to trip over each other and bump each other and give each other black eyes, not on purpose, and all of this. But that as difficult as disaster, disease, disagreement may be, like you just said, that God can walk us through it, especially if we can find this distinction between it's all me and I failed, and here's this experience. How do I deal with it? How do I learn from it? Yeah, and in our own tradition, we have this idea that God gave us weakness. So generally speaking, as you say, God sets up this the obstacle course made up of other people, largely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he says, do you want to learn how to do this better? And then if we want to, he can help us. That's a great point, if we want to, because there are some things, I'm, I hate to say it, but if I'm in a car accident and something horrible happens to my leg, I may have no choice but to find a way of interpreting or dealing with that every second the rest of my life. There's another thought that an opportunity might present itself to me, not that I would have chosen, but then I have this moment where I think, I seem to have this opportunity. Will I choose this to go forward? And our next guest really does that. Yeah, our next guest is Reverend Marion Edmonds Allen, who is the executive director of Parity and New York, a national nonprofit that works at the intersection of faith and LGBT concerns. And this is something, of course, she talks about immediately, is a lot of people don't think of LGBT people having faith, and she's going to dispel that myth. She's worked with youth and families across the country for over 20 years, um, including in positions like the Executive Director of Outreach Resource Centers, the National Program Director for the Family Acceptance Project, and the Executive Director of the Utah Pride Center. She also takes a phrase that some people love and some people are in fear and trembling over, which is religious freedom. Because most believers think, I should be free to believe as I believe and worship as I desire. Other people think those people using their religious freedom seem to want freedom to discriminate against me or some other group. And she talks about how we all should be and can be benefited by the concept of religious freedom. There's so much to learn about humility and about forgiveness and about healing even from Marion Edmonds Allen. Just a wonderful story that she has to share. Depending on who I'm speaking with, when I say religious freedom, sometimes they perk right up and smile, and other times they shake their head and they don't want to talk to me anymore. And generally, those are LGBT folks and allies who think, who believe strongly that religious freedom, the phrase, is code for religious discrimination that's legalized. So a good part of my work is to be an ambassador for religious freedom and to say religious freedom is for, to quote Ambassador Brownback, for everyone, everywhere, all the time. And that includes LGBT people. And I feel that LGBT folks and 
a lot of other people are missing out if they don't see what religious freedom can do for them and can do for causes and issues that they care deeply about. And then conversely, what might many straight people not recognize about the faith lives of folks in the LGBT community? Maybe starting with, do they have a faith life? It's so interesting. The common perception is that LGBT and faith are oppositional. It's very rarely that people talk about LGBT people and their faith lives. But actually, more than 50% of LGBT people report having a religious faith and attending religious services and having deep spirituality. And this is even more true for LGBT young people who report having a very deep spirituality. I feel like it's another myth that we need to bust this this myth. And I feel like I'm an ambassador for LGBT and faith as well. And often when I speak, I wear my clerical collar and I out myself as an LGBT person and I out myself as a person of faith. And usually people are scared about that. And I make a joke saying there's probably something here that's scary to you because those two things aren't supposed to go together. But that's my story. And I'm not alone. There are many LGBT people of faith out there that share so much with the church, but share so much with the world too, and really deepen our understanding of God and what spirituality can look like. I would like to go to the practical. And I think you're really good at this. This is why you have served as executive director of an outreach program and various other programs. You wrote a really wonderful opinion piece in the Salt Lake Tribune. And in this case, it was dealing with LGBT homeless youth and teenagers. I moved to Utah. I was invited to come to Salt Lake City to plant a church, but really I was very interested in LGBT youth homelessness. Utah had become known for having a lot of LGBT youth who are on the streets. So we started the church and then we started ministering with these homeless young people. We would bring food and supplies all over Salt Lake County to about 60 homeless youth. And from there, I got more and more involved with working on youth homelessness and was invited to be the executive director of Ogden Outreach Center, which is north of Salt Lake City. And it's a youth center with, at the time, it didn't have a particular focus on homeless youth, but I brought that when I became the executive director. Early into my time there, there was a young person that showed up at our door with a battered suitcase who had been kicked out of the family home and didn't have any place to go. And I thought, okay, I can find a place for this young person to stay overnight because it was getting dark and it was cold, but there wasn't any place for this young person to find shelter that night. So I told them, call a friend. Do you have a friend nearby, someone you can stay with overnight? And then the next day, we'll find a place for you to stay while we get you the help that you need. So that night, the young person was assaulted at their friend's home. And that moment changed my life because I realized that there were very real consequences for youth experiencing homelessness. I heard about the suicides that were happening, this young person that had been assaulted, and there were no services in Utah. So I became a very vocal activist. I had event after event where I wanted a lot of media attention to publicize the fact that there were homeless youth in Utah. One of the events was focused on a new bullying bill that had been passed. And the bill was if a young person was bullied at school, Someone from the school would call home and say, okay, there was a bullying incident. I was worried that young people would be outed for being LGBT and kicked out of the family home. So I did a big event. And the next morning, I had a phone call from a legislator named Gage Frower in Ogden asking me to come and meet with him. And I did. I met Gage and I met his legislative aide, Laura Warburton. And what we did was we argued. We argued about whether or not there were any homeless youth in Utah. And I said, well, there are. And no, how could there be homeless youth in Utah? They must be runaways if there are any, but we there aren't any. 
So we went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I said, if you don't believe that there are any homeless youth in Utah, come to outreach to the youth center and meet some. And I left and I figured, okay, well, that's that, you know, moving on to the next thing. Lo and behold, the next week, Laura showed up at outreach and I was amazed, but there she was at the door and I was walking her down the stairs to our center, which is in the basement of a church in Ogden. And we got to the bottom of the stairs and Laura is a talker. So she was talking and we were still arguing about whether or not there were any homeless youth. And this slight young person came down the stairs. I was looking up the stairs and I could see them. Went down the stairs, went by us. And behind me were shelving with canned goods and socks and things that a homeless youth would need. So this young person had a backpack and started filling the backpack. And Laura noticed him and said, what are you doing? Are you really hungry? Why do you need all those socks? And the kid was like, didn't want to engage with Laura. And Laura said, well, how old are you anyway? And the kid, little kid, said, I'm 18. And we all knew that was wrong. And finally said, I'm 12. And Laura said, you're not homeless, are you? And the kid finished packing up the backpack and ran by us, ran up the stairs and Laura looked after him and said, the kid was in a t-shirt and it was November and cold and said, where is your coat? And from there, I could see Laura's heart just melt. And my heart melted in return because I could see how it affected her. And the next week, there was a truck that pulled into the church parking lot. And it was a flatbed 18-wheeler piled high with winter coats. Laura went home. She called her church friends and said, can you help their cold kids out there? And so we had hundreds of coats. And from then, Laura and I became this unstoppable partnership. Whereas I thought, okay, well, I need to make people angry and aware. She said, if we need to change the laws in Utah, let's change the laws in Utah. I know who we should talk to. Let's go meet with such. And together, we changed five laws in Utah for youth homelessness and then for suicide prevention. But my friendship with Laura changed my life. I realized that being an activist is wonderful. And there are other ways to accomplish things. And working together across difference, to me, that's the most effective way. And that's the focus of my dissertation. That's what I do now is point out, okay, here's how we can work together. And here are the wonderful things that we can do together. That's really beautiful to hear. And you could call that interfaith work, or maybe it's just interhuman work. So I have so many questions just from that beautiful story, which is, first of all, it's wintertime. We would say, how could any parent kick their kid out? I have a heart for the parents. I truly do. Parents love their kids. Parents want the best for their kids. And it is scary to find out or think that your child is LGBT. And years ago, parents were told, if you have an LGBT kid, you better kick that kid out so they don't, so it's not catching an effect with your other children. So they would do that. That In fact, they tell the kid, okay, you go out, you straighten up, and you come back. Not realizing that once a kid hits the streets, there are predators. Every single child will be approached by a sex trafficker within 36 hours. And the kids that survive being on the, the streets, it's really hard. They organize in families to take care of each other. But the parents that have done that and continue to do that, they don't realize the risks that are out there for mm. their children. You've done so much in helping reduce teen homelessness in the Salt Lake area. You've just given one example, but how do you bring on the community partners that are needed to help with this? People want to help. That's the thing. Everyone wants to help and they just need an opportunity. So to me, it's spreading the word. It's saying, if you would like to help Let's partner together, even with people that, like I learned from Laura, people that I thought perhaps were my enemy, people who are part of the problem. No, they want to be part of the solution. This is In Good Faith, 
We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to In Good Faith. What kind of laws got changed? You mentioned five laws. The big one was that an unaccompanied youth couldn't be sheltered. So the idea was, okay, if a child doesn't have shelter, doesn't have a place to sleep, they must be with their family. I think no one had really thought about it. Then it was an easy law for them to change. And this wasn't a law, but it was part of the school board rules in the state back when there was what was called don't say gay in the state. And what it meant was that if an LGBT child needed help, they couldn't get that help. So there was a young girl who went to her guidance counselor in Davis County and said, my parents kicked me out because I'm LGBT. And the school counselor thought about, okay, there's this rule I could get fired if I say anything to this student. And this the guidance counselor said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And the next morning, the girl was found, she was okay, but the girl was found outside the high school sleeping in a snowbank because she had no idea where to go. So the solution to that then is to go and talk to the people who can change the laws and to tell these stories. And then I remember at the time we talked to someone who was very powerful in getting that rule changed and told the story and seeing tears running down her cheeks and saying, that is not what we meant at all. We need to keep kids safe. So people want to help. They just need, they need to know how. So I'm wondering in that time, and especially as you've showed up in different places hoping to make a difference, what differences do you see even in that short time? You've mentioned some laws changing. Do you see other changes happening? I do. And I live in Utah and office out of New York City and travel a lot. But Utah is a chosen home for me because it's a very unusual, wonderful place where people can come together for the good. My experience with Laura then moved on to legislative things that happened in the state for religious freedom and LGBT civil rights. When the Utah Compromise was passed, I could really see a change in what was happening in the lives of LGBT youth. It's so much different now. The youth see opportunities for family, for a future, for education. It's a sea change. And then when I was invited to be part of the Fairness for All Coalition, and this is federal legislation that is similar to the Utah Compromise, I immediately said yes, because the benefits we've seen in Utah are benefits that we need across the United States and also need to happen around the world. So through that work, I have met the most amazing people, surprising people that one might think, oh, they would never care about LGBT folks. Well, actually, they really do. And they care so much, they want to help, and they are helping. And it's beautiful, the work that people are doing. This sense of mission you have, is this based on your faith? Oh, absolutely. It's based on what God taught me, despite myself. It reminds me of the Jonah story, which I love, because God has given Jonah a job to do. Jonah needs to go to a village and give them a message, and he doesn't want to do it, so he strikes off in a different direction, and God sends a whale to swallow him and spit him out on the beach. And that was how I felt, because I was so angry at people who were different from me, people that I blamed for LGBT youth being homeless. And I just, I couldn't find any love in my heart. And Jonah couldn't find any love in his heart either. He was disappointed they did change. (laughs) Right. Jonah was very disappointed. Jonah wanted a different outcome. And I think part of me then wanted the same thing. I wanted there to be a bad guy that I could blame and we'd be right. But you know what? It's not us and them. It's all of us together. And the beauty of the partnership that God showed me was that working together across difference was the secret sauce for saving lives. It wasn't anything that I could do alone. It wasn't me working more with people just like me. It was me working with someone that I had thought was my enemy. That was the gift. 
when I meet someone new, someone who maybe makes me feel uncomfortable, I lean into that now because I think, okay, who has God brought into my life today that I can learn from? And I'm excited by that. The world is a surprising place. How has God surprised you over the years? And this could be just you personally, in your faith, in your family, in this work that you do, any of that. God surprises me every single day. And part of what I've learned over the years is now I start looking for that. Where is God surprising me today? When I was a young person, I thought that I should behave in very certain ways that I was in, I became Baptist and evangelical and then part of the Reformed Church in America with very strict behavioral parameters. And that was wonderful for me, but also what that meant for me, that my worth was tied into how perfect I could be. And whenever I wasn't perfect, which was all the time because I'm human, I would think, oh, God hates me now and I'm a bad person. But what I've learned over the years is that, yes, following God's commandments are so important. And God is a God of love. And I'm an imperfect human being, but I'm also a beloved human being. And my mistakes are cues that I can learn from and my experiences with Laura and with the people that I meet every single day show me that God is a God of surprises and people who I would have avoided before I now realize are, okay, this is one of God's surprises for me today. So when you're thinking about something or pondering, hoping for answers or direction, does that come as ideas or is that something you just see unfold in life as you live your life? I see things unfold, and the way they show up for me is meeting people who are very different from me. And that's part of the reason why I try to be in areas where I'm unexpected. The religious freedom world is one many times, most times, people are surprised to see me, an LGBT person at religious freedom events in Washington, D.C. and internationally. But then people will come and talk to me, and that's where I learn something new, and I see what God is up to, and then I try to run along and catch up to whatever God is up to. My wife and I used to sing in the local interfaith choir here in town, before we got too old and warbly. Uh, <laughs> and this is where I first heard you speak. You were speaking at an event in the interfaith choir. We were singing, and I was so impressed with your sense of what I felt from you as an outreach to everybody there from all different walks of life and ways of believing. First of all, thank you for that and for your willingness, because that can't always be easy to show up where you're not expected. I think God shows up where he's not expected or where God is not <laughs> I think expected. that's true. I think that's true. Yes. And thank you for for saying that. It's also my call on my life that I I really believe this is what God is having me to do. And I find such joy in it. I truly do. So a question I'm often asked is people really want to help in the world. They really do. And sometimes they wonder, what is it that I'm supposed to do to help in the world? And then how can I actually do that? So what I say is, look for what is most on your heart. For me, it was homeless youth. I couldn't stop thinking about it. What is the thing that you can't stop thinking about? What's the need in the world that keeps popping into your mind? That is your key. That is your thing to work on. And then Think about, okay, what is it that I can uniquely do? For me, I had a particular position in an organization that allowed me to be public, and that was unique to me. But every person has their own unique talent or their own unique network that's helpful. That was true for Laura. Laura had a heart, and Laura had a different network that was helpful. So look for what you have that's unique to you. And then here is the scary part, and to me, the important part, look for someone who's different from you, who may even have a different reason to care about an issue and make friends with them or find one of your friends that's friends with someone who's very different and reach out and say, I would like to talk about 
whatever it is, in my case, youth homelessness, and then find what you have in common. Everyone has something in common. If you just keep talking, you keep listening, you will find that special thing. And then it's the aha moment. Laura and I both cared about kids being cold and we both had a strong faith and we built on that. And everyone can do that with another person. That's Reverend Marion Edmonds Allen, a remarkable person, both what she does in New York City and here in Salt Lake City. And I love the journey she took us on of finding someone she thought in the legislature that she was supposed to be agitating against. But they end up working together and accomplishing all these great things. I love that story about Marianne watching Laura's heart melt. She could have thought when she saw the change in Laura, see, I told you so. She could have thought that. But instead she thought, oh, this person cares as much as I do. And she had the humility to open up to that and then see this person as someone to work with. Reverend Marion has taken on this cause for homeless youth in the state. No one said, we would like to hire you to do this. She notices this and decides it will be her stewardship. She takes it on. I would have, before this interview, said she takes ownership. But she sees this as a thing she can do and that needs doing. I love what she said. Find someone who cares about what you care, but who is completely different from you, which is not what we naturally do. And I think we also, when we surround ourselves with people who already think like us, we assume we know all the best ways to solve this problem. And what her story shows us is, no, we don't. We don't know the best ways and even things that we thought might help. I'm really touched by the stories of these different legislators who hear about kids on the street and admit right up front, this isn't what we intended. We had something completely else in mind, and now we need to change. And that, too, takes humility. That, too, takes willing to learn and do better. So this whole idea of ownership versus stewardship and not tying yourself so closely to any project any other person that you really cannot control, you only can try and influence or support. I find that to be a useful distinction. Yeah, I was really grateful to hear from both of these people today. And I'm just really touched when people are so generous with their time to share their stories with us. Many thanks to Gainalyn Condi and Reverend Marion Edmonds Allen for speaking with us today. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Austin Ball, Leah King, Tanya Lockett, and Katerina Martinik. Our sound designers are Daniel Phillips and Dallin Jepson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds sharing their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you like the show, the best thing to do is leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts. That really helps spread the word. Find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith. <laughs>